This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Buddy, in this episode, I got to tell you, this is a band that meant the world to me as a kid growing up. I couldn't have loved a band anymore until Alice Cooper came along, of course. Uh, but CCR, Creedence Clearwater Revival. And I think a lot of people have a special place in their heart for this band because the music meant so much. It was part of a changing tide from the 60s into the 70s. And man, oh man, what they meant to the year 1969. And we kind of want to talk about all of it, but there's a couple little twists in the story that we want to include too, right? They're a band who could have done so much more, and it's really kind of a bummer that we will never know. Inside this episode, we'll talk about the nature of the sibling rivalry, as well as the music in the band. There's a sibling rivalry, and there's always a little hook, and there's definitely a hook in the sibling rivalry with CCR. And there's another one of our little anomalies that we study, birthday twins, a very near miss. Two members of the band born one day apart. You talk about simpatico, right? No kidding. And they were childhood friends. Well, let's start right there because three of the four guys met in junior high school, that being Doug and Stu, and John Fogarty, the younger brother of Tom Fogarty, the fourth member of Creedence Clearwater Revival. And I guess we should put a time frame on it because they were in junior high school and high school at the end of the 50s and into the 60s, except for Tom, who was a few years older. One of the misperceptions, Marcus, and you may have had it too about this band, is that they were from Mississippi or Louisiana because of the music they played, right? Totally. Before I got into the research, I'm like, I wonder where in the South this band is from and... Contra Costa County, California, El Cerrito. One of the more California Bay Area type towns you could pick in those days. They sang about being lost in Lodi, another town in California. Uh, but they made it about a town in Louisiana. The feel of the music. I think John Fogarty really thought that he was uh, lead belly in some ways. And <laughs> tried to channel that vibe through their music.
But like so many groups in the 60s and 70s, you don't start out with the name that you end up with that makes you a household name. That is true. Originally, the three kids in junior high and high school called themselves the Blue Velvets. And you know, I don't really remember reading anything about these days, not that much anyway. Do you know how that whole thing came together? Because the Blue Velvets did like six recordings. They started out as the three kids in high school, John, Doug, and Stu. They were uh, backing John's older brother, Tom, when he would play live gigs or when he would record. I found out you were running around with every single guy in town. And now it's time I'm hurting from your love, so I'm certain yes it is. Yes it is. And then eventually after Tom doing some solo recordings and stuff like that, he finally joined the Blue Velvets. And then they recorded together. And that was really the beginning of CCR in its early incarnation. And the next possible step in any sibling rivalry between J.C. Fogarty and his brother Tom. Because they had a group. He joined their group. They're backing him up because he's the older guy. He's got the name. And then it all gets swirled into a blender as they move forward. And I could see where the balance of power, if you want to call it that, gets upset a little bit. Things get a little different than was planned and out of sync from what people thought was going on. And it could cause some discord that could grow. Marcus, I got to talk to you about this lost TV show that they recorded for an Oakland station and what it meant to me. Publications that predicted their demise now feature their success. In addition, they are now the sometimes uncomfortable stars of Top 40 Radio. Tonight, our special guests, Creedence Clearwater Revival, a fantastic bunch of fellows here. If you'd like to talk to them on the telephone, our action line is open at 478-3240. Tom Campbell at 28 minutes past 8 or KY Bridal Fair time. And I, John, if I can get you over here for a second, would you do me a favor? I'd like you to draw a name out of the finalists that we put in the little hopper here. For the top 1,000 Golden Gateways. Would you do that for me for a second? John, now that you've been across the nation, you've seen many different states, you've seen hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, you have real success in the music world, what do you think of pickles and how they taste? I don't like them. Is there any particular type of pickle you don't like? Dill. Dill pickles? Is there any real reason you hate those? They're not kosher. Real people. Credence Clearwater Revival. I'm talking none other than John... Tom, the Scorpio, Stu, and of course, the Doug. And in there, two names emerged that I never heard that they went by during those early days. I don't know if it was before or after Blue Velvet. By the way, was David Lynch a fan of Blue Velvet? Just saying. Uh, the Four Winds and the Visions. You know, names of the times, right? I would guess that that Four Winds name was a very short-lived name before somebody was like, hey, we got to change this. They move forward, bro, and they catch the attention of the folks at Fantasy Records in Berkeley, which is where they're really from, you know, that area, right? Mm -hmm. But the name chosen by label president Max Weiss is the Gollywogs. The band hated it, and it was already considered a racial slur, and I didn't really know why, so I went and Googled it, and I know you did the same, and I was pretty much fucking horrified. I was totally horrified and couldn't believe that a label president would even consider asking a band to be a name like that. The band hated that name. But starting in mid-1964 through 1967, they did a whole series of recordings under that name. And I see that a lot of those songs were written by the brothers together, but nothing really happens with them. 
The one thing you notice if you look at the list, a couple songs kind of filter their way through the change that's coming into the Creedence Clearwater catalog. Porterville, which John said he wrote on the base when he was in the Navy Reserve, I think. Oh, yeah, that's another thing. Him and Doug both got drafted, and they both went into the reserves to avoid going to Nam. Which was a smart move on their part. This is real-time threats to everything and everybody. They saw what was going on over there. They didn't want to be part of the carnage. This is the 25th Infantry Division, the newest troops in South Vietnam the United States. This is part of their first heaviest action. Like most of our troops, they have been taught to depend on firepower. And depend on it, they do. The Gollywogs kind of have their run anyway. And the powers that be change at Fantasy Records. Weiss is out, and Saul Zantz is the new owner and head of operations at Fantasy Records. And he's got some ideas for these guys that don't involve being called the Gollywogs. So here they are at the crossroad about their name. Like so many bands at the same time, it seemed like every band in the 60s went through this kind of crisis. So they turn internally for some inspiration to come up with their name. They take credence from the name of a friend of Tom's by adding an E, and they almost use her name as part of a full-blown credence new ball and the ruby was going to be the name. (laughs) Glad they didn't do that. But they thought they'd add an E since she was C-R-E-D-E-N-C-E so that it would be like Creed, like, you know, faith, right? The middle word came from a TV commercial for Olympia beer, clear water. (laughs) A true friend is a man with love in his heart and a kitchen table on his back. Somebody who'll help you move. A friend like that deserves a nice cold beer. A beer brewed with naturally perfect artesian brewing water. An Olympia beer. And I always thought Revival had something to do with Earth Day and all that stuff. The new environmental movement of the time. And no, it was just the guys renewing their faith and commitment to each other from their early days into Creedence Clearwater Revival. Some of the other rejected names include Muddy Rabbit. What's up, Doc? <laughs> Gossamer Wump. What the fuck is that? I don't know. And then the one that you had mentioned was another one that was rejected, and they just wanted to be or come up with a weirder name than, like, Jefferson Airplane or something like that. It was almost like they were competing with these San Francisco bands for weird names. Well, they weren't geographically correct for part of that competition. Every band has a path, Marcus, and this is the road that takes this band to July 5th, 1968, and their self-titled debut album, and they make some noise almost immediately because of the songs, man, how they sound. Their debut record is fantastic. I love their cover of Screamin' Jay Hawkins, I Put a Spell on You. He just gives it such a cool vibe.
they reinvented it for a new generation of rockers when they put it on that album. Because remember, this is hippie time. 68, man, we were starting to change. And they're going back to Screaming Jay. And also, Susie Q, which was a redo. No, that's a great song, too. Great, great song. I mentioned a couple songs from the Gollywogs that got included. Porterville gets reworked and added to that debut album. And Walking on the Water becomes Walk on the Water, one of those powerful Tom and John songs on the debut from CCR. It's worth noting, Marcus, that all of these albums sold what they sold in initial runs and then all went platinum or double or triple platinum moving forward because they became a sensation that was going to last beyond their shelf life and well into the new century. Even now, right? Absolutely. Rock and roll and classic rock stations play a lot of their music still. 1969. Three albums in one calendar year. And look at the songs, because the songs stand the test of time. Like Proud Mary, you know, all the different versions that have been done through the years. Working for my man every night and day But I never lost one minute of sleep I was worried about the way the thing might have been You know the big wheel keep on turning Proud Mary keep on burning And we're rolling Rolling and I think that was one of the sore points for John Fogarty because somewhere in the deal that put Creedence Clearwater Revival together to make an album with Saul Zantz, he took their publishing. So when other artists would record it, he would get paid. We'll talk about that a little bit more later in the episode. And don't forget, Marcus, Born on the Bayou, which they weren't, as we noted before. This album really got them everywhere. They got them on tour. It got them on the radio. Pop radio was playing Proud Mary, right? Mm-hmm. They had cool, deep tracks on both of those first records for the emerging underground rock radio, too. And they do a great cover of Good Golly Miss Molly as well, going back to the early days of rock and roll. And for me, Marcus, it is the first time I ever became familiar with the term chuglin. As in, keep on chuglin, baby, to wrap up the album. Woo! Great tune. Credence's second album of 1969 is released in August. It's Green River. And rinse and repeat, Marcus, because it's filled with songs that people like to sing along with and play on the radio. And they get those kind of hit songs that are going to last forever, like Bad Moon Rising, right? Wow, yeah, Bad Moon Rising 
is one of those songs that was kind of big in the 80s because of American Werewolf in London. Bad Moon Rising was one of those songs that my dad really loved to play on the cassettes. Green River was another one that I remember hearing from this album. If you want to catch the tone, the feel of this album beyond the hits, just plunk on the first song, the title track, Green River from Creedence. And I can't end a discussion about this album without breaking out their cover of Nappy Brown's The Nighttime is the right time to be with the one you love, Marcus. I went back and listened to this song, the original Nappy Brown version, and I was like, holy cow, what a cool song. And the way they kind of make it their own is pretty awesome. The original is very hot and sexy. Very. One of the things that I think really stands out about Credence as a band is their ability to take these covers and make them their own, but their career didn't depend on them reinterpreting covers. They wrote great songs also. These were just like spicy flavor enhancers for this band and what they did. Spicy flavor enhancers. I like it because I like that spicy sausage when I was a kid. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yep. All right. It's already been a pretty good year, 1969, for these guys, right? And then they had to fucking Woodstock. Woodstock, man. And they're one of the big bands at that point, right? The Woodstock story's nuts. Ladies and gentlemen, to continue, please warmly welcome with us Credence Clearwater Revival. Great tell. From watching one of the documentaries on Woodstock, originally Fogarty and the band did not want their songs released after their performance at Woodstock because they thought they were really bad. It just didn't feel good to them and they thought they sucked. Yep, and they were really heartbroken and disappointed by their performance, and it couldn't be further from the truth. And if you watch the video and watch their performance, 
They were awesome. A changing moment for that band because of how good they were. All right, let's jump in the imbalanced time machine and move forward this time, Marcus, to later in life when John's sons hear those tapes and ask why he didn't put them out. And he says they suck. They're like, you're fucking kidding me, Pop. (laughs) They kind of motivated him to go back and listen and then rework with the digital you know, workbench, you can do a lot of things you couldn't do back then. Mm-hmm. And they eventually released those performances around the 50th, I think, or just before the 50th. Listening to them when we right before we recorded the episode about the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, I was blown away by their performance. And at that time, I was like, I can't believe this has not been released until now. This is so good. And then we found out the story afterwards. Traffic in the city turned my head around No, 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 no Back up on the freeway Back up in the truck Everywhere you look There's a frown, frown Come, come, motion Get, get, get gone Come, come, motion Get, get, get gone You know, it was part of the momentum that got Rhino Records to do the whole big box set of everything they had and fix everything they could, you know. I really think that that was part of the motivation because Fogarty's gang kind of showed you could do it. Hey, Marcus, guess what? What? They've just played Woodstock. They're the biggest band in the world right now, probably, you know, 1969, emerging from the West Coast with that swamp rock all over them, and then put out a third album in the calendar year of 1969, November 2nd, releasing Willie and the Poor Boys. I had so much fun going back and listening to this album because after listening to the first two, you hear this growth, this development, this change in the band. In the same year, deliver this album a couple of months after Woodstock and them just blowing people away. Just in time for Christmas pie. Exactly, but... They really made a mark on the music industry at this point. And at this juncture in time, as a young record collector, start thinking, I have to stop buying all these singles. Of course, because I was such an avid collector, I have a huge stack of CCR 45s with the picture sleeves. You know, the, the it, yeah. oh, it's great. It's great. I'm going to get some of those out. I got to go down to the basement and find them and take some pictures and put them out. But that's where they are in 1969. I would say that's a hell of a year. Three albums and an appearance at Woodstock. Fans firing on all cylinders at this point. They're just crushing it. So they all go to Doug's place. He was nicknamed Cosmo, Doug Clifford. And his hangout rehearsal space was actually called the Cosmos Factory. Long And 
and that was the name of the next album in 1970. I heard the first single while driving on Street Road in Ben Salem to visit my cousins in Croydon one Monday night, seated between my parents in the front seat, listening to Famous 56 WFIL, and Traveling Band comes flying out of the speaker. 737, come out of the sky, oh, won't you take me down to Memphis on a I don't even know what it is. I think it's a new Little Richard record or something, and I reached for it and jammed the volume up. I first listened to Traveling Band, driving in the car with everybody, jamming the radio to top volume, and then I found out it was them, and they had a new album coming out, so I just got the album. The pendulum swings, Marcus. Oh, it swings. And that would be their last album as a quartet, and they'd have hits like Hey Tonight or Have You Ever Seen the Rain. But things start to happen in that sibling rivalry area that lead to the brothers not getting along and it leads to the rhythm section not getting along with the singer-songwriter. Everybody was not getting along with the singer-songwriter at that time. Tom Fogarty leaves the band and they do one more album as Creedence Clearwater Revival. And I liked it. It had hits. Sweet Hitchhikers on there. Someday Never Comes. Great songs, right? Mm -hmm. Great John Fogarty songs. Yes. But what happened before and during the making of Mardi Gras adds to the sibling rivalry and foments the tension that leads to the end of the band. Doug and Stu were complaining that they didn't get to do enough on the records. They both wanted to do stuff. So John said, fine, you want to do stuff? Each of you have to come up with three songs for the next record. They were, oh, oh. But they set off on doing that because basically Fogarty said, look, it's the three of us. If you don't do your part now that you've spoken up, I'm quitting the band. <sighs> that doesn't sound right, but it's the truth from everything I've read. I read that exact same story as well in a few different articles. I'm a looking for a reason today. I'm all wound up and you know... I was such a Creedence fan that I didn't really notice it that much at first. And years go by and you go back and listen, you go, oh, yeah, that does sound a lot different. I just like the record a lot, but I don't think that people were buying into that lost feel, the Tom Fogarty feel, part of the equation that made them special. I don't think anybody expected them to be over in 1971, 72, but they were, right? They were, and Saul Zantz and Fantasy Records had a lot to do with that. The tension in the band between the members had a lot to do with that. They signed a horrible record deal. Horrible. A few articles I read said maybe the worst of all time. John will seek revenge, both in song and in the courts, uh, later in our story. But I think we need a brew. I'm ready for a cold one and a fresh change of socks. It's the many faces of Creedence Clearwater Revival. From youngsters to superstars to fractured friends and family. Sibling rivals. And a little bit about the near-miss birthday twins when we continue on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll.
You know, man, I've been meaning to ask you, you did the big cancer ride down the shore. How were the bold foot socks on your feet while you were riding down there and in the rain, too? Tell you what, those bold foot socks were tough in the inclement weather. And between the boot covers and the socks, my feet didn't get stinky, wet, musty, or anything nasty like that. I did not get gnarly feet at all. Gnarly feet, bad. Uh, Old foot socks, feet protected, good. Seriously, they felt great. They wicked the sweat out of me because we were riding and we were riding at a good pace. And Only the socks are going to wick the sweat out of you, buddy. That's all I want to say. <laughs> and, you know, that's one of the things they're really good at. And that helps you to get like a drier ride, like between the sock and your feet when it's getting wicked away from it. Oh, we sweat big time when we ride. When your feet are moving at that pace for as long as they are, you need protection for your feet. Your feet are important. You can't do what you want to do without your feet. So you need your feet protected. So beat your feet to boldfoot.com and check out the wide variety and styles of socks they offer right there on their website. And don't forget to put imbalance15 in the code box to save 15% on your first purchase at boldfoot.com. Look, they're your feet. Be bold. Thirst. It's a need, Marcus. You need to satisfy a real thirst. And what a better way than with a nice, fresh craft beer at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro. And you can also visit Jamie's House of Music in Delco, to get that very fresh and tasty Crooked Eye beer. Their music schedule's picked up at Jamie's House of Music. I follow them on Facebook, so you see a lot more shows going on there. And anytime they're open for shows, you can get your Crooked Eye there, get a growler, and take some home. Or you can head to Hatboro, and their schedule's picked up a lot, too. And my vinyl night is moving to its permanent home the second Tuesday of the month. Come and see us. Bring your vinyl if you want. Or I'll bring mine. You can't forget that Friday nights from 4 to 11, there's live music over at Crooked Eye and open mic night the first, third, and fifth Mondays of the month. First, third, fifth. I can't do math when I'm drinking at Crooked Eye. Well, the brews are cold and they're always fresh, always the favorites and something new on the board there at the brewery location in Hapro. Serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. We thank them for their support of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. Back on the Imbalance History Podcast, Marcus, I want to talk to you about something that I saw back then and I discovered in the last few days. Uh, It made me fall crazy in love with the band. It was a TV show, of all things. It was originally recorded, filmed for local broadcast in the Bay Area. And somehow I think it made its way on to either Don Kirshner's rock concert or the Midnight Special or one of those. And I saw it as I was falling in love with this band and I saw it on TV and it galvanized everything. All of a sudden I wanted to wear flannel shirts, just like John Fogarty You starting to follow. Yep. But that footage, the things we learned in there and the impressions that I got from that really added another layer to my fandom. I became full on fanboy at that point. I think it started to get annoying to 
people in my life, you know, parents and siblings or what have you. Did you get to see them live during those early days? Oh, God, no. No, that's years before I went to concerts. No, I did get to meet John, though, at a concert on the center field tour, me and my brother. Somewhere there's a picture of me and my brother Joe with John Fogarty. And really, he was only interested in my brother and three people, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, and John Fogarty when we were kids. And so it was a big deal to be able to get him backstage to meet one of his heroes. Was he friendly? Yes, he was. Despite his reputation of being a curmudgeon, yes. uh, he was kind and very accommodating. I think he realized <laughs> I have adult fanboys on either side of me. Just be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and they're tall. Yes. <laughs> so we talked about how um, John Fogarty pushed the other two to uh, contribute to what became Mardi Gras. And in my opinion... Uh, he killed the band by doing that because everything fell apart and the control part of it just got out of hand. And basically everybody was telling everybody to fuck off by the end, I believe. Even though Brother Tom had already done that and left for his solo career. You know, man, I think it was unusual in those days for a brother who was four years older than you to be in your band. And I don't know whether it was because of their age difference or because Tom being the older thought he should have more sway or John being the guy who was writing all these hot songs, thought he should be the one running things. But they go their separate ways. And Tom takes on a solo career. He makes several attempts, really. Uh, he was with that band Ruby for a while after his first phase didn't work mm -hmm. out. And he even made one more try in the 80s. But he comes out solo in 1972 with Tom Fogarty, the self-titled album. It tops out at number 180 on the U.S. charts and really doesn't do much. As a fan of Creedence Clearwater Revival and being sad when they broke up, how did you feel about an album like this? Were you excited for it? Were you looking forward to see what Tom could do? Or were you kind of like, eh, we'll see? You remember when we had the discussion about going solo and sometimes you'd go so low that no one would ever fucking hear from you again? Yes. Here we are. I never heard anything on the radio or anything about any of his solo albums. Didn't read about him. Didn't have interest in him. And until we started researching for this, I didn't really listen to most of it. I'd listened to some, but not most. Looking back now and listening with a different ear, do you like it? I kind of feel the same, that it's just kind of there. Excalibur is the next album, and the thing about that is he enlists Jerry Garcia on guitar, Merle Sanders on keyboard, and John Conn on bass. Now, these guys, and Bill Vitt on drums, no slouch, right? These guys were the basis of what would become the Jerry Garcia band early on. A couple of them were on the Old and the Way record that Jerry did. So you see that there's like cross-pollination here between mm -hmm. San Francisco area artists and Tom Fogarty and Jerry Garcia and the others. Then in 74, Tom gets together with Doug and Stu and gets them involved in Zephyr National. This is going to be the big breakout record, except for it doesn't. And they're back with him on Myopia, a second release in 1974. He's taken every opportunity to make music, doing his thing. It's not working. And that's when he goes with Ruby for two albums in the 70s and then another one in the 80s. And he had another Tom Fogarty album, Deal It Out, in 81. None of these are really getting any traction. Mm -hmm. Then he gets sick. At a time when AIDS was widely viewed as being a gay disease, which, by the way, it never was, just in case you didn't know. Good point. 
Tom Fogarty had back surgery and received a transfusion with unscreened blood. And he was infected with HIV, which gave him the AIDS syndrome and took his life September 6, 1990. For a long time, it wasn't clear what it was because of the way society wouldn't talk about AIDS. I had heard a story that he had tuberculosis or something, but that's what it was. And it was early. Yeah, very early in in the understanding and knowledge about the disease. Alongside some of that struggle, his brother John struggled too. He did the Blue Ridge Rangers record in 73. I don't know if you know much about that, but Mm -hmm. uh, his version of Jambalaya, the Hank Williams song, really killed it and kind of gave him a hit, even though it was all pretty much tributes to some of his heroes like Jimmy Rogers Mm -hmm. and Mel Tillis and stuff. Merle Haggard. Yeah. Everybody loves Merle Haggard. How can you not? Then that self-titled debut and the song Rockin' All Over the World, man, it felt like a Creedence record almost Saturday night, right? Mm-hmm. Those are great songs. Just listening to this for the first time recently, it sounds like he was really gathering his feet and really finding his way as a solo songwriter and musician without the bands, even though it was early in his album career. When he was out there as a solo artist, Asylum Records was smart. They brought him in on the first one, right, for the U.S. When it gets around to the second solo album, it's called Hoodoo, and I call this the Hoodoo Effect because... I listened to it, and I, I listened through the fact that it was posted on YouTube, and it just didn't sound good. And that's pretty much what Electra and Asylum were telling them. You know, this record doesn't sound good. It's not that the songs are impossibly bad or the performances aren't good. It's just the sound of it. You know what it's like when you get in a session and you're too close to it, and you get all caught up in it, and you, mm-hmm. you got to step back later and go, wow, I need to do this, that, and the other thing. Well, I don't know if they did the step back and and review part because it never got released. Asylum just said, hey, look, we're going to pay you. We're we're just going to write this off. And that was a real shot to John because there he is, John fucking Fogarty. His his music was stolen. His band broke up. He's angry about it all. He's angry with them. He's angry with himself probably at this point. And as a fan, I just went, oh, man, what happened here? And he kind of disappeared for a while with his next solo record, Center Field, which became a huge hit. But, you know, initially he was just going out there playing these songs and a few others and leaving it at that. Mm-hmm. That 10 years, a lot happened. I mean, his relationship with his brother got really bad. His brother sued him for songwriting royalties in 78 and for credits mm-hmm. and things like that. And right, And it dragged on slowly for like, seven years and then one day Tom walked into court, dropped the lawsuit and then tried to act like he had never sued John and so there was that issue between the two. He's like, yo, what are you talking about? Just because the suit didn't uh, continue forward doesn't mean it didn't happen. Part of the problem was, was that Tom got really close with Saul Zentz, which really bothered John because Saul's the one who stole their songwriting and their music, and he had to go to court against him in fantasy as well. So yeah, 
he felt betrayed, I think, and backstabbed by his brother in that way. You know, I never really thought about it that way, but I think you might be right. That only added to the sibling rivalry between them. And maybe it's fueled a little bit by John pulling himself up by his bootstraps, writing some great songs like Center Field, which became an anthem, right? Baseball fans, you know it from the first time you hear the hand claps. Songs like Rock and Roll Girls or Old Man Down the Road. My grandfather, my my mom's dad, he fucking loved that song. He'd hear it come on. He'd start doing the dance and be there in his, like, his uh, old guy pants with the white shirt, the suspenders, and the cigar. Mm-hmm. Dancing to John Fogarty. It was the funniest damn thing on Sundays at our house. God, I remember when Centerfield came out and how exciting of a song that was. Like, that was one of those songs that excited people when they heard it. And it got you ready for summer, or it made you feel like no matter where you were, it was summer. Also, part of the Centerfield story is that lawsuit with Saul Zanes, okay? They originally put out the album with the song Zanes Can Dance, like Z-A-N-Z, which isn't his name, but it's close enough, right? And they had to uh, reissue the album suddenly, you know, because there was threats of lawsuits and stuff like that to Vans Cantans. And (laughs) I never saw anybody doing such a strange bunch of dances in my fucking life over this kind of stuff. And and the guy who was being vilified deserved it. No one said otherwise. Saul went on to use John's money to become a producer in films and used it to aggrandize himself and build his personal wealth without any thought for a long time that he should fucking go back and give them some of the money back. In fact, Saul sues them, claiming that the old man down the road is the same chorus as Run Through the Jungle, a song that John fucking wrote. I think that was probably the moment John Fogarty ever thought about doing harm to another human being. That might have been it. Because, you know, it's like rubbing salt into the wounds. So, Zentz loses the case, Fogarty sues Saul for the cost of defending himself against the copyright infringement, right? Everybody's suing each other back and forth. The only one making out are the lawyers. And it ends up being a precedent case when the Supreme Court overturned lower court rulings and awarded attorney's fees to John Fogarty. I think rightly so. I think if you are on the losing end of the lawsuit in that case, you should be responsible for legal fees. But the little caveat is Fogarty didn't have to show that Zance's original suit was frivolous. You're absolutely right. You sue somebody, they defend themselves, you lose, you should have to pay for their attorney. I agree. I think if that were the case, I think we'd see a lot less of a clog in the legal system. I think the courts would be less tied up. Fogarty's solo career continues through the 80s with albums like Eye of the Zombie. In 1997's Blue Moon Swamp, which I just love, it's back to that feeling of, yeah, I'm from California, but feels like the swamps to me. What comes next is John Fogarty recanting his statement that he would never play Creedence songs again. They come to an arrangement. He digs in and does Premonition, which is basically re-records on a lot of stuff and re-releases on some stuff and rarities. It's all cool. Mm -hmm. So he starts to play the CCR songs in public, and the crowds get bigger. 
and people respond. People want to see John Fogarty live. Oh, yeah. Seriously, Centerfield mixed in with all those CCR classics. Holy cow, that's one hell of a night of rock and roll. John's next solo album plays off the Yogi Berra catchphrase, Deja Vu, all over again. (laughs) And Detente continues, leading to The Long Road Home, a best-of collection from the Creedence Days, and The Long Road Home in concert in 2006. So regular stuff going on. John Fogarty releasing and leaning on material from his past. You know, at one point, Fogarty's kids started to grow up, and they started to be part of the band too, right? Shane mm-hmm. and Tyler been with him doing songs for years. Tyler sings, and uh, Shane plays guitar and vocals. They get a great family harmony going, and, and they've got a good band. They get out there, and they play, and they have fun, and I think that's what John's about, cross-generational fun here, and uh, I think that's what he's enjoying now 2013 wrote a song for everyone a big collaboration uh record i thought that was really cool having people from all the different eras cover Fogarty's songs i know you love fortunate sundown by the foo fighters oh yeah great cover But someone closer to their own era, Bob Seger's version of Who'll Stop the Rain was pretty incendiary, too. Bob Seger could sing the phone book and make it sound incendiary. Well, you're right about that, my friend. When you're right, you're right. So it's down to the Fogarty family band and continuing to enjoy life. And I'm happy to see that he's done that and found some happiness because, let's be honest, he wasn't always the happiest guy. Two guys who stuck together all through the years after Creedence broke up are Doug Clifford and Stu Cook. Could it be because they were born one day apart? Almost birthday twins. Missed it by that much. Doug born on 424, Stu born on 425 in 1945, joined at the hip in Creedence and all the bands we talked about before. And when Creedence broke up, they took a long time off. I guess they did okay. So they were just taking some time off doing different projects and albums. They both were involved in playing with different people. And then they formed Creedence Clearwater Revisited with different players and started going on tour. And the fans started coming out. I think that was part of what got Fogarty to start playing Creedence songs again, to be honest with you. I always hoped that they would get together, the three of them, and maybe with a friend or two, fill out the amazing sound of Creedence Clearwater Revival on stage, maybe records. It's almost too much to hope for. It's cool, though, that Doug and Stu have remained partners and friends all through it all. But for a few hours, would have been born on the same day and pure birthday twin, being in the same band. That's crazy, right? And sticking together all these years as well. That's really crazy. 
through the years, they haven't gotten together with their old mates very much. In fact, it's been kind of dramatic at times. All four members were together at Tom Fogarty's uh, wedding in 1980, and their last time playing together on an album was his Myopia record in 74. John, Stu, and Doug went to junior and high school together, and they played at their 20th anniversary at El Cerrito High School in 83. But they played as the Blue Velvets. How fucking weird is that, right? That's totally weird. Did they play all the Blue Velvet songs? I don't know. I'm sure they did. Was David Lynch in their class? (laughs) He probably was. As time goes on, lots more lawsuits and nonsense, you know, sibling rival and birthday twin nonsense between everybody. And it comes around to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 1993 and my least favorite moment as a fan of these guys for decades. John refused to perform with Stu and Doug. At the induction podium, Doug Cosmo Clifford. Well, uh, nobody wants to go first, so uh, guess what? It's me. I can't really begin to describe the feeling that I feel inside at this moment, so I won't try. Uh, What I'll do is I'll thank a lot of people. I'm going to do it chronologically, somewhat of a historical. I was a history major in college for a while. So, first of all, I want to start by thanking Tom Fogarty. I miss him. And Tom is the one that got the rest of us in a recording studio when we were 15 years old, backing him up, trying to get a record deal. So he was way ahead of his time. Uh, Demo tapes now are, of course, guys at the gas station you drive in, they have their demo tapes. Nobody had a demo tape in 1959. So Tom, thank you for that. I know you're here. I want to thank John Fogarty for sharing his immense talents. I want to thank Stu Cook for his solid bass playing and his friendship for 34 years. I want to thank Fantasy Records for putting our records out when no other label in the world was interested in Creedence Clearwater Revival. I want to thank disc jockeys around the world for playing us then, breaking the band, and for continuing to play the music today. I hear it all the time on the radio. I want to thank our fans. That's an obvious one. None of this would be happening if people didn't love us, and uh, we love all of you, whoever you are, wherever you are. I want to thank the Hall of Fame nominating committee for thinking of us, and I want to thank everyone who voted for us and everyone who didn't vote for us. What the hell? And Cook and Clifford were there, seated with their families across the room from Fogarty's, not next to each other, not together. And they got up to go to the bathroom just as the performance was beginning so they wouldn't have to sit through it. And they later wrote letters to the Hall saying it was hurtful and insulting to let that happen. And I can't disagree with them. They were an important part of that band. CCR wouldn't have been what they were without those two dudes. No way. We talked a little bit, Marcus, about the fights in court. You know, uh, the deal they signed was pretty shitty. But I think that there were some situations that just made it untenable for John to put up with. Like, sure, he might have had a moment of pride seeing his song in Forrest Gump, right? Or the many other places where songs like uh, Fortunate Son or some of the other songs would be used, uh, Who'll Stop the Rain, to... you know, to illustrate things in movies. And and that would be great, except he also had to see his songs degraded in car commercials, tire commercials, and one for paint thinner. Paint thinner for Who'll Stop the Rain. What the fuck? The worst might have been his iconic fortunate son in a blue jeans commercial, though. 
And Fogarty just was like flipping out over this kind of stuff. And I don't blame him. For as uh, difficult as he could be, I don't blame him. And the people who owned all that, there was still this ongoing bitterness between them because as owner, they did things that they shouldn't have done knowing the artist. But they did them anyway. Again, Fogarty channeling his inner lead belly and being treated like shit by the man. What a crazy ride this episode has turned into, brother. I didn't expect it to go all these places, but here we are. <laughs> and I guess because it's emotional at times, it kind of takes a lot out of you to talk about this. Stuff. Absolutely. It's a heavy story. All right, man. I'm going to flip on Cosmos Factory and rock out with one of my favorite bands from my early teens through today. Man, I just love Creedence Clearwater Revival. And what a great album to play us out here on the podcast. If we missed anything, if there's any information that you would like to share with us about CCR, if you happen to see them live in oh, those early days, if we you were at the if you yes. were at Woodstock, please let us know. Oh, if God, you saw yes. any of them at any of these important shows, please, please reach out. Imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can drop us a message on our Facebook page, on our Twitter account, or you can uh, drop us a message via our website, imbalancedhistory.com. And you can listen to this podcast on every single podcast platform. We're finding that the number of platforms that we're on, it's easier to just say that than try to name them all. Uh, thanks to everyone for finding us wherever you do. Thanks to our friends at Pantheon Podcast. Our sponsors, Boldfoot Socks and Crooked Eye Brewery. A wonderful ride through the years that were Creedence Clearwater Revival. Till the next time that we crack the mics in the Dark Duck Studios, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this has been the imbalanced history of swampy rock and roll.